Welcome to Talking Beats with me, Daniel Lalchuk. If you like what you hear, I'd love you to give us a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify. Write a review, and if you're so inclined, tell a friend or family member. They might like the show as much as you do. Be sure to visit our website, talkingbeats.com, where you can find much more information about the guests, support the show in various ways, sign up for the newsletter, and be in touch directly with me. As always, the dialogue continues on social media at Talking Beats Podcast. I'm so glad you're here with me. Now, to the conversation. On today's program, global expert in telecommunications and cybersecurity advisor, Stuart Brotman. He has served in four presidential administrations on a bipartisan basis and has taught students from 42 countries in six separate disciplines, communications, journalism, business, law, international relations, and public policy. He also has advised private and public sector clients in more than 30 countries on five continents. At Harvard Law School, he was the first person ever appointed to teach telecommunications law and policy and its first visiting professor of law and research fellow in entertainment and media law. He also served as a faculty member at Harvard Law School's Institute for Global Law and Policy and the Harvard Business School Executive Education Program. He served as the first concurrent fellow in digital media at Harvard and MIT. He has now turned his attention to that aspect of American life that fascinates and divides us today as it always has, freedom of speech. He's out with a new book called The First Amendment Lives On, Conversations Commemorating Hugh Hefner's Legacy of Enduring Free Speech and Free Press Values. In the book, Mr. Brotman conducts conversations with such free speech luminaries as Floyd Abrams, Nadine Strossen, Jeffrey Stone, and others. How rigorously must free speech at all costs be upheld and defended? What is the responsibility of the American citizenry? How far is too far when it comes to national security, even personal security? What, if anything, are we willing to give up? Well, to talk this and much more, Stuart Brotman joins me now. Welcome. Daniel, it's great to be here. Why the issue of free speech? Why now, after a a long and varied and distinguished career in various fields, who you are honing in on sort of a hot button issue? Why and why now? Well, uh, this is my history of virtually all of my adult life. And even probably a little before my adult life, I've been immersed in issues related not just to free speech, but free press. Uh, I started off as a high school journalist, and high school journalists then and now uh, have had difficulties in covering things for high school newspapers because typically they expose things or want to write about things that teachers and administrators don't want them to write about. And so there's always been this historic tension between student journalists, particularly those who want to act like journalists, in other words, cover the news and find out things and obviously exposed things when uh, they're not necessarily going in the right way. Uh, So uh, even as a high school journalist, I experienced some of that tension. And fortunately, I had advisors to my school newspaper who were very adamant in terms of saying, we have your back. And so as a result, we were able to basically publish things that 
typically would not be published. Uh, and I remember even during that period, uh, we were allowed to go outside the school I grew up outside of New York City in New Jersey. Uh, but one memorable moment is when my faculty advisor brought a bunch of us to Columbia University. And the reason that we were brought there that day is because Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin were there staging a protest at Columbia. And uh, we were actually allowed to interview them and publish that interview. And again, that was not something that necessarily a high school administrator or principal or others would like to see in the newspaper. So I started very early in this field. And then as I went along, obviously, uh, I became educated in this area. In college, uh, I studied with some extraordinary First Amendment scholars. One was named Franklin Heyman. Uh, another was John McKnight, who had been the executive director of the Illinois ACLU. Uh, and so I had really a broad exposure to the literature and some of the cases as an undergraduate. And during that period, I also had the opportunity to spend a semester at UCLA Law School. Uh, and I studied uh, First Amendment and media law uh, with someone named Jeff Cowan, who later became the Dean of the Annenberg School at USC. Uh, and then I continued on in graduate school, uh, studying First Amendment issues, and then ultimately wound up at Berkeley. And as you know, Berkeley was the seat of what was called the free speech movement. And so very much the ethos of being on campus was understanding and seeing how free speech would work in a college environment, university environment. Uh, and there I for formally began to study constitutional law and the First Amendment in a legal context. Uh, and then also during law school, I had a fellowship during the summer at something called the National News Council. And the National News Council, once upon a time, was this magical place that was created where when there were disputes about what we might call today fake news or misinformation or disinformation, there was actually a body of independent, nonpartisan individuals who sat and looked at these cases and would come out with decisions. Now, in order to have a case at the National News Council, you essentially had to say, this will not be brought to court. So it was really a private, not-for-profit organization. Uh, but during that time, the people on the News Council that I interacted with were quite extraordinary. Uh, people like Catherine Graham, who was the CEO of the Washington Post and obviously was very famous in terms of having been a leader covering Watergate, obviously, with Woodward and Bernstein backing them up during that period of time. Uh, and then also people like Bill Rusher, who was the publisher of the National Review. And he and Bill Buckley obviously held the fort for uh, free speech and free press uh, in more conservative circles. So uh, there was a lot of exposure to various people during that time. But one other I can mention very quickly uh, was Fred Friendly. Uh, Fred Friendly was legendary. Fred worked with Edward R. Murrow. And during the 1950s, when we had the McCarthy era, uh, there was a famous show that um, 
friendly produced and Murrow was the host of. And one of the episodes of that show essentially exposed Joe McCarthy and was really the first mass exposure of what was going on in terms of McCarthy's investigations of alleged communists and un-Americans. And as a result of the power of the medium and the power of the message of Murrow and Friendly, ultimately that was the beginning of the end of Joe McCarthy. And then Fred later became the president of CBS News. And he was also very famous because uh, there were hearings that were being held about the US involvement in the Vietnam War. Those were being held during daytime. And Fred said, we are going to cover them wall to wall. This is well before C-SPAN, well before CNN. And the network overruled him. They said, no, we are going to rerun episodes of I Love Lucy because they make more money. And uh, Fred resigned. And that was really an act of courage, but certainly it was one that was consistent with his First Amendment principles. So I guess the very long answer to your short question was this is not an area that was new to me. It's one that I have lived through uh, in my life and continue to live in my life. And so when I had the opportunity, which was an extraordinary opportunity to discover the connection between First Amendment and Hugh Hefner and the Hefner Awards, Hefner Foundation Awards, and then the individuals that I had conversations with, uh, it, it was very easy for me to jump into that. So speak a little bit about how you came to uh, reading about and, and delving into all these scrapbooks of Hugh Hefner and, and, and talk a little bit about, you know, who he was for, for those that maybe only know the name, who he was, what he did and uh, and how sort of intellectually serious he was in many ways. Uh, sure. Let me break that down into two parts. Uh, so I've uh, I used to be president of the Museum of Television and Radio in New York, and Los Angeles. And that is now called the Paley Center. But when I was running it, it was really a curatorial institution. So we essentially archived most of the major radio and television programs really since the early 1920s. And we had about 150,000 programs. So I became deeply immersed in this idea of archiving and archival research. Uh, and then about five years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Silicon Valley on a totally unrelated research project. I found out there was an archive at Stanford University, which is called the Internet Archive. And that's essentially all of the papers of the people who started the Internet and started Silicon Valley. So you can go there and see Steve Jobs cocktail napkins and Bill Gates's notes, and it's really quite extraordinary. Uh, that is a closed archive, so you have to have formal permission to be there. And you also are only restricted to look at five boxes of materials a day, and they need to be requested two weeks in advance. And so I was out there for a period of time, but it was somewhat frustrating because obviously there's this great archive, but you have relatively limited daily ability to look at it. But I got very interested in this notion that there were people who have left 
these materials somewhere. Now, in the case of Hugh Hefner, Hugh Hefner was uh, one of the extraordinary entrepreneurs of the 20th century, certainly in the media and publishing world. Uh, 1953, he left Esquire and uh, started this new publication called Playboy Magazine and basically did that as what we would call a shoestring operation today out of his apartment uh, and had the foresight at that point to, to buy the rights from a from picture of Marilyn Monroe, who is obviously a famous, beautiful celebrity. And it was a nude picture. And he included that in the first issue of Playboy. And of course, the rest is history. Playboy then grew into a gigantic empire, it became the most popular men's magazine in America, and one of the overall most popular magazines. And then from that, a lot of other activities were built. There were Playboy clubs, there were uh, Playboy festivals, the Playboy Jazz Festival, there were other publications that were started. So it really was a media empire that, that he created right at the beginning. What was very interesting is really since about his uh, childhood, probably when he was in fifth or sixth grade, he started to keep a scrapbook. And he really got into scrapbooking, which a lot of people did at the time. Today, we would call it Instagram or TikTok or something else. But he really liked the idea of being able to put together little things about his life and preserve them in these physical scrapbooks. And so he did that for 75 years. He died uh, five years ago. He was 91 years old. But for about 75 years, every Saturday, he would spend all day or most of the day scrapbooking. So he would have loads of papers and things that went on during the week, and he would cut them out. And then he had a little typewriter and would type the captions for the scrapbooks, and then he would put them in. Now, ultimately, once Playboy became a gigantic empire, he had a staff. And he lived in something called the Playboy Mansion. And within the Playboy Mansion, he built a library. And so the library essentially housed all of these scrapbooks. And ultimately, there were 3,000 scrapbooks that were compiled during his lifetime. Uh, what's interesting about the scrapbooks is I call them the hard drive of his life. If you had the hard drive of someone's, uh, what everyone had done and were able to plug it in, that's the feeling I got when I began to look at the scrapbooks. It was not just related to things that would promote Playboy or promote the magazine. It was some of his inner thoughts. And what was very interesting as I began to go through the scrapbook. So I think I'm the only person outside of the family and outside of his staff that has ever had access to this complete collection of scrapbooks. Uh, but what I saw in there was this consistent through line. And as I said, it started uh, when he was very young and he was a high school journalist and a college journalist. And so he experienced this notion of wanting to be free in terms of what was being expressed. Uh, and then, of course, once Playboy uh, began to take off, he saw that 
the government obviously had some issues in terms of what was being published there. There were certainly nude photographs of women that were in there. Uh, at that point, there were postal laws. There were uh, various cases dealing with obscenity. And then some of the people that he was friendly with and encountered had their own difficulties. Uh, probably most notably, Lenny Bruce, who was a very famous comedian, uh, really did club comedy as opposed to television or anything else. But Lenny Bruce was arrested a number of times around the country because people, namely police, did not like what he was saying. And so, in fact, his lawyer, uh, Lenny Bruce's lawyer, Marty Garbus, has been on here, uh, as, you, as you probably know, on this program. Absolutely. Right. And so, uh, you know, there's a long history of Lenny Bruce. Uh, it turns out that Hef and Hef was his nickname and it was his nickname literally through childhood. Uh, Hef basically helped support Lenny Bruce's defense during those years uh, and ultimately he was uh, pardoned by Governor George Pataki, which is really unprecedented. Posthumously, he died in 64, but uh, he was ultimately granted a pardon. In fact, one of the people in the book, Bob Corn Revere, was the lawyer who petitioned New York, which was the only place he was really convicted to have that conviction overturned and wiped off the books. So uh, in terms of, uh, of Hef, it was just really interesting to be able to see his thinking, uh, not only how it evolved, but how consistent it was. And I, I could boil it down to probably five or six really key areas. So he, he was very concerned about political speech. So he thought, and I think all of us who are strong First Amendment advocates and scholars think that one of the core notions of the First Amendment is obviously to enhance political speech. Uh, he also, as a journalist and a publisher and an editor, he thought that uh, the First Amendment should support uh, investigative reporting and should stimulate investigative reporting. And in fact, Playboy magazine had a number of major investigative pieces. A lot of people don't remember that during the period. Uh, he thought that movies should not be censored. And there was a long history of movie censorship in the United States, some of it by government, some of it by religious organizations, and some of it by self-censorship. And he was an enormous fan of movies. He grew up in the 30s and 40s and went to the movies uh, virtually every week. And as you know, during that period, movies were very inexpensive and they had matinees and double features. And so a lot of his life was spent at the movies as well. He didn't think government should essentially play a role in terms of censoring what audiences could see in terms of cinema. Uh, he was also very concerned about promoting free speech on campuses. And obviously that's a really topical issue today, but this is something he was concerned about for many, many years, and uh, also protecting the rights of student reporters. 
And so that resonated, obviously, with what I've just told you about my experience as a student reporter. I, I want to just hone in for a minute on the university free speech issue, because as you said, it's a very popular thing today. And in fact, in your conversation with Jeffrey Stone, uh, you, you do have uh, a, a large uh, interplay about uh, free speech on college campuses and, and what Mr. Stone says uh, is is very interesting. Uh, he, he makes a distinction that uh, that the First Amendment applies only to public institutions, for example, uh, that it applies to University of California, but not Harvard, for example, something like that. Uh, and uh, and then he says, I'm quoting here, on the other hand, even private universities should aspire to promoting free and open discourse and the questioning and challenging of ideas. This is accepted wisdom for the intellectual life of universities in much the same way as the values embodied in the First Amendment have come to be understood over time. Uh, then he goes on to say, uh, in the same way that Justices Holmes and Brandeis argued that virtually unfettered speech helps to achieve truth in the political arena, the best way to achieve truth in the academic arena is not to have censorship, but to have a broad and robust freedom of debate and discussion and disagreement. So even in private universities, there should be a commitment to free expression that is very similar to what the First Amendment itself imposes on government entities. What that means is that the institution should not suppress the opportunity for students and faculty and other members of the university community to explore ideas in ways that enable them to advocate for what they see as wisdom and to challenge what others may believe to be wisdom and truth and facts in order to seek greater knowledge. So that was Jeffrey Stone, Stuart Brotman. Where are we now? He, he sounds rather idealistic uh, and perhaps not representative of where many universities here in 2022 America are going. Well, well what's interesting about Jeff Stone, Professor Stone, uh, who was the dean of the University of Chicago Law School. Uh, so he was a disciple of a professor named Harry Calvin. And Harry Calvin was one of the great First Amendment scholars in the 1950s. And uh, in 1957, he was uh, assigned by the University of Chicago to write principles of free speech that would be applied to the university. And so he wrote something which became known as the Calvin Report. Uh, and then many years later, uh, in fact, uh, probably close to 50 years later, Jeff Stone was now the new Harry Calvin. And so he was asked by the University of Chicago to chair a committee to look back at the Calvin Report and to see whether or not it should be updated in terms of where we are today in campus free speech. So what's interesting about Jeff is he, he didn't just think of this as a theoretical matter, but as a practical matter, because he was given the responsibility by the University of Chicago to develop rules for that university. University of Chicago is a private university. Uh, what's interesting, they uh, came out with a report which commonly is known as the Stone Report or the Chicago Principles. It's a really three pages. It's not very uh, difficult to read, very plain language. And essentially it encapsulates what you just 
read there, which is this very strong idea that the campus should promote as much free speech as possible, as many diverse views as possible. There are now 70 universities which have taken those Chicago principles and said, we agree with them. Some of them are public universities and some of them are private universities. So I think part of the story is at least 70 universities today agree with this concept of really almost unfettered uh, free speech. Now, what's really interesting about the Chicago principles is they also indicate that in order to do this, the university has to be neutral. The university should not express opinions about anything. The university essentially should be a forum for other people to express their opinions. So in the book, uh, I have a conversation with Nadine Strassen. And Nadine is the former president of the ACLU, in fact, the first woman, woman president of the ACLU. And she's been very involved in campus free speech matters uh, as a law professor at New York Law School, obviously with respect to the ACLU. So uh, Nadine has a different view. She said, no, universities should not be totally neutral. Universities basically by being universities have certain principles and ideals and they should be able to express them. I mean, for example, diversity. So uh, an inherent aspect of universities obviously is they, they believe in this notion of diversity. And why should, shouldn't they be able to talk about that as opposed to just let other people talk about it? So even in the first amendment area, there are really, different viewpoints as to what you do in the free speech area. Uh, and, and you, you mentioned 70 yeah. universities that have adopted this so-called uh, stone document, the Chicago document, uh, which advocates for almost as broad as possible interpretation of the role of free speech. But 70 is kind of a drop in the bucket when it comes to the tens of thousands of uh, institutions of higher learning in this country. And, and, don't you think it's undeniable that uh, many universities, if they not have put out a press release saying we reject this document, in practice, reject this document? Uh, yes and no. I mean, when you actually look at the numbers, 70 is actually a pretty significant number uh, because many of those universities are quite prominent and associated as leaders in higher education. Uh, what many people fail to recognize today, even though we hear a lot about campus speech issues, and certainly they are current and take place, is the campus we're thinking about is probably not the campus of today. It's maybe the campus of 30 or 40 years ago. So uh, today, only about 60% of college students uh, are even on a campus. So we have obviously people who are uh, online, people who are part-time students, uh, and then we have a whole bunch of institutions which you may or may not consider as universities in the true academic sense. And these are religious institutions. So they have rules which essentially start out by narrowing the scope of discussion and inquiry. And uh, so when you look at about 4,000 universities in the country, but we have 
probably only about 200 or 250 that would still fit into this classic mold of being uh, what we would call a, a campus-centered environment. And as you know, U.S. News rates colleges or has a ranking. They only rank about 200 universities every year as well. So the, the numbers are a lot smaller than you would think. So 70 out of, let's say, 200 or 300 universities is actually pretty substantial. Talk more about the way in which you went about choosing the people to talk to for this book. Of course, in this country, there's a lot of distinguished people who have worked with this issue and, and wrangled, grappled with this issue for decades. And uh, you sort of have a huge pool of, of fascinating people to choose from. So uh, discuss this group of people a little more in detail. We've, we've talked briefly about Stone, about uh, Nadine Strossen, but, but talk about how you assembled this particular very interesting list of people. Well, let's go back to Hef and let's go back to the scrapbooks. So uh, Hef's daughter is Christy Hefner. And Christy, after she graduated from Brandeis University, actually went to work as a journalist at the Boston Phoenix for a year. Uh, and her father said, why don't you come back to Chicago and we'll try to figure out whether or not it might be interesting to go into the family business. And at that point, the company was totally private, so he could essentially ask her to do anything. She worked as his special assistant for a period of time, and then she went through various departments, marketing and editorial and circulation. Uh, and by the time she was 30, which was uh, only about seven or eight years after she graduated college, she was appointed as president of Playboy Enterprises, and then she became the chairman and CEO. So essentially, her father handed over the reins. But in 1979, right before all of this happened, uh, she went to her father and said, I just found out that the John Peter Zenger papers are going up for auction. Now, probably many people have no idea who John Peter Zenger is, uh, nor should you, but he's a historic figure in terms of free speech and free press. So John Peter Zenger was a printer and a publisher in New York in the colonies in the 1700s. And he published something called the New York Weekly Journal. And the New York Weekly Journal was highly critical of the governor, who of course was the royal governor back in England of New York. Uh, coincidentally, that governor's name is Bill Cosby, but that's an, an entirely different issue. <laughs> in, in, in any event, uh, Cosby did not like the idea that he was being criticized by the New York Weekly Journal and Zenger. And ultimately, Zenger was brought to trial for defamation. And Zenger, there was a, a lengthy trial and Zenger was acquitted. And there are papers dealing with the trial and dealing with the New York Weekly Journal. They all were assembled and put up for auction. And Christie convinced Hef that the foundation he had established should buy these papers. So the foundation buys the papers. And then Christie said, why don't we take them around the country at museums and libraries? And why don't we exhibit these so people understand 
what this was all about in terms of free press and free speech. And then also she started a national essay contest for high school students. And people wrote what the First Amendment means to be. So after a year, the papers were donated to the Chicago Public Library. Uh, but Christie said, I don't want this to end. This is really important. And so in 1979, in her father's name, she established the Hugh M. Hefner First Amendment Awards. And those have been going on now for over 40 years. The 2022 awards will be given out in September. And over the years, about 150 people have been given these First Amendment awards. And so what I did was I went back and looked at all of the individuals who had been given this, these awards. And not surprisingly, many of the leading First Amendment scholars and advocates had been connected either as nominators, as judges, or as recipients of the award. So I thought there was this really interesting bond between that very early idea of Hef and the First Amendment, the creation of the awards, which are the legacy that his daughter created, and then the recipients. And as I went through the list, I found these seven individuals that I thought would be really interesting to have conversations with. Uh, I didn't pick them out by age, but it turns out that all of them are in their 50s, uh, 60s, 70s, or 80s. And so I call them the greatest generation of First Amendment scholars and advocates. And the reason is because they were really on the front lines of thinking about, and in many cases, litigating some of these seminal First Amendment cases. Let me just ask a quick question right here, because you, you mentioned the age. And of course, I, I happen to notice, too, not that I care at all. There's a, I think we live in a very ageist society now, but I, I, I don't subscribe to that at all. Uh, I, I, but I just happen to notice. So let's say all these people are in their 60s, 70s and 80s. Are there young people who are or younger people who are around the country now who are going to be viewed as pioneers and real uh, warriors for free speech. Is there another generation, another two generations of people who you view as uh, intellectually rigorous and uh, societally brave and, and legally accomplished enough to fill the shoes of these people? Oh, absolutely. By saying they're the greatest generation, I mean, a lot of the people who follow will stand on their shoulders. And part of having a book like this assembled is so the future leaders, advocates can look back and capture sort of the best thinking of these people. This was really probably the only opportunity that many of these people had to sit down and talk about their life's work. And as you know, uh, to do it in a conversational way, because everyone had their own first journey. It's quite interesting to learn how these people got started, how they their thinking evolved over the years. Uh, and again, when we have new generations come up, everyone has a, a new journey that they're going to embark upon. So yes, I, I think there are going to be new generations. What's interesting in the you know, relatively narrow world of legal scholarship is that there, there was a burst of 
uh, support during the 1960s, 70s, and 80s for First Amendment scholarship. Now, that's less so today in the law school community. There are just other areas of law that get more attention. But there are, there are a number of very good young scholars in the field, and a number of them have been trained or looked to some of the people in the book as, as mentors or inspirations. And of course, it's not just scholarship. I mean, the First Amendment, the Hefner First Amendment Awards are given to loads of different types of people, including high school journalists, who of course are on the front lines, just as I was on the front lines many years ago, uh, and to librarians who essentially are fighting to keep libraries as sources of free speech and free knowledge, uh, filmmakers. So there's a, you know, just a, a great variety of people who I think are the emerging generation. But again, it helps to know where they came from in order to know where they want to go. This is a tough question, I imagine, because you probably had many uh, interactions that were surprising or unexpected in these conversations. But as you were talking to these people, as you look back on the finished conversations, what are some of the things that stood out or one thing in particular that stood out as being particularly surprising? What did someone say that really took you aback, that made you scratch your head afterwards and maybe even lose a little sleep that night? Well, I'm not sure anything did, but there is an interesting person who doesn't really fit the mold of most of the other people in the book. Uh, and his name is Rick Jewell, Richard Jewell, except there's someone named Richard Jewell who was associated with the Atlanta bombings of the Olympics. And so he goes by Rick Jewell. Rick Jewell uh, is a professor emeritus now uh, at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. And what I discovered when I read the scrapbooks or looked through the scrapbooks, which you would not find anywhere else, was that Hef taught with Rick Jewell for 20 years a course on film censorship at USC. And the conversation I have with Rick, I enjoy a great deal because I have a deep affection for movies. And obviously we talk a lot about movies in a historical context. But what was very interesting at the end of the book, Rick talks about creative freedom and how sometimes having too much creative freedom doesn't necessarily yield the best type of creative result. And he talks a lot or talks a little about some movies in the 1930s and 40s when there were restrictions on what could be said or shown, but there was a suggestion. And part of what creative people had to do was to think about how to convey things to audiences with a wink and a nod. And so they wouldn't necessarily just be out there showing something. And I think he has an example in there about, I think it was Bogart and Bacall and a movie dealing uh, with horse racing. And he talks about going to the races. Well, they're not talking about going to the races, they're talking about going to bed. And apparently audiences understood that through this discussion of horse racing. Obviously, if you had a movie like that today, you wouldn't have a discussion about horse racing. You would just show what was going on. And so what was interesting with Rick is Rick thought that even though it's great that we do not have censorship today in movies, 
that maybe maybe that has hurt the creative process a little bit because it makes it much too easy to be able just to sort of come to the edge as opposed to develop things with a little more nuance. You know, on this program, everybody talks a little bit about music, Stuart Brotman, and, uh, and you're no exception. Uh, music is something to everybody. What is music to you? Uh, well, I want to talk a little bit about uh, music in the book, because as you know, the book has a little bit of music with uh, with Bert Newborn, and, and Bert has this notion. He's written a book about it called Madison's Music, and his notion of the First Amendment was that the First Amendment was constructed uh, almost like a musical composition so that it started out with thinking about religion, which is this idea of, of sort of the inner soul or inner thoughts, and then moving from there to free speech, which is expressing it, and then free press, which is the ability to amplify your speech, and then this notion of assembly, which is people getting together to share their thoughts, and then ultimately petitioning. So he credits Madison, James Madison, one of the founding fathers, in a way that I think people in music might credit uh, Mozart or Beethoven as, as a great composer, a constitutional composer. So I found that interesting. I found that connected to music. Uh, in terms of my personal life, it's been uh, really a, a fundamental part of my personal life. Uh, there is a sort of a funny story, which is that in, in college, I kept my uh, music on 24 hours a day. I slept with music. I woke up with music. And I, I was known in my dorm rooms. I worked in college radio uh, in Chicago and was able, obviously, to amass an enormously large music collection. So uh, I, I probably own about four to 5,000 vinyl records at this point. Uh, and so, you know, music is just a critical aspect of my life as well. What are you listening to right now? Uh, well, I, uh, I go back to uh, sort of that great period, the, uh, you know, 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s and 80s. And there's just an extraordinary uh, not only amount, but the quality of the music, obviously, uh, you know, I've gone back and uh, listened to the the Beatles and sort of the, the full collection of Beatles uh, and Dylan and Joni Mitchell and sort of all of the names that you would associate with that period of time. And they're, uh, they're extraordinary musicians. Uh, over the years, I've had the opportunity to interact with some musicians. And as a lawyer, I've had the opportunity to, to represent some uh, pretty significant uh, musical entities as well. So music is great. I'd like to know what you think are some of the key takeaways from this book. What are some of the lessons? Uh, and I'd also like to know where you come down. There's a lot about where other people, other people who have lived with it and who are experts in their own way and freedom of speech and freedom of the press. But where do you exactly come down has it changed over time oh well absolutely so let's talk about takeaways so i i think part of what i would like the book to do is to begin to have conversations about the book and so it's meant to be a conversation starter as opposed to a conversation ender and uh you know i realize there really aren't many books out there that are 
general interest books where you can sort of pick up and, and read without obviously being a lawyer, hearing about specific cases or thinking about this in an academic way. And so I, I hope that the book conveys this conversational element because it's, it's really organized as a series of stories. So I think that's one takeaway. The other is that the First Amendment is not an area of or what I call orthodoxy, which is there are a lot of different interpretations of the First Amendment. Uh, the third is there is this separation between First Amendment law and First Amendment culture. So there are the First Amendment really covers the prohibition of government restricting speech and press, as well as other aspects of the First Amendment. And so many of the things that we're dealing with today are not First Amendment in the legal sense, but they certainly affect us in terms of free speech and free press values. So when we talk about social media, for example, there are not government restrictions which are saying to social media platforms, you're not allowed to have certain content or you are required to put certain content on. But of course, there's an enormous debate in this country and some polarization around those issues. So I, I think the other aspect is for people to begin to think about how do we create a better free speech and free speech culture, independent, obviously related to the law, but we need, we need to have a free speech culture in order to support the First Amendment. And I'm not sure that we're there. And I think a number of things could be done to improve it. I think in, in the book, we have a few conversations. And I think everyone always says, well, we need better civics education. Well, this notion of civics education is, again, probably a notion of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, but we don't have civics education anymore. And so I think we need to rethink what that means in a 21st century context. How do students learn things like the First Amendment in school and in their peer groups? And I'm, I'm not sure we've really thought that much about how to do that and how to do it effectively. What would a renewed uh, civic education look like? Would it be called civics? Would it be modeled after the 1950s? Or what, what do you envision? Uh, I don't at all. I mean, I think, again, those days are gone. And I don't think we're going to have sort of formal classes in civics. I think even the word civics would make a lot of people cringe. So it's not not a word that we really know. I think I think we need to begin to think about other ways to do this. Let me give you a quick example. Uh, I think it would be a great idea if the First Amendment were recited before baseball games, basketball games, football games. So we have the national, we have the national anthem now. And uh, every professional sports league, but when you go to a game, they said, please rise and let's all sing the national anthem. Well, that, that's nice. But what if before we sang the national anthem on the jumbotron, they have the words and they said, Let, let's all now recite the First Amendment and then sing the national anthem. So we could really begin to connect the identity of our country and what it means to be an American with this powerful 
idea of the First Amendment. That's the and best I, idea I've heard in a long time, I have to say. Oh, well, I thank you. Thank you. And uh, and, I, and I think it, it can be done. Again, you know, we need to begin to have more conversations about that. But I would suspect that most people, you know, probably could not recite those 40, it's only 45 words, and uh, or even know that it covered, the First Amendment covers five different areas. So, for example, when you have a citizenship test, if you're going to qualify to be an American citizen now, there is a First Amendment question, but you're only asked to name one of the five freedoms of the First Amendment. I think that's a, a relatively low bar. I think we can probably raise the bar and at least get people to understand that there are these five freedoms of the First Amendment. Obviously, two of them are free speech and free press. So the, what are the, the others? Can, can tell us all five? Oh, well, obviously, free exercise of religion. And there's a lot uh, that we talk about, not just in terms of the government not establishing uh, you know, a state religion, but also the idea that people can decide whether or not to have a particular re religious faith. That's part of the First Amendment. We talk about petitioning, uh, assembling this right of assembly, and that's a critical aspect, obviously, of the First Amendment. And the last is petitioning, which is the ability of people to then go to government after they've talked about it, read about it, assembled. Now they want to have something done. And so this idea of petitioning is going to the government and saying, we want some change. Uh, what's interesting about that, particularly in the discussion with Bert Newborn, is Bert has this idea that voting, even though the words voting are not in the First Amendment, that voting really should be considered part of the First Amendment, because all of the other aspects really add up to the ability to go to the ballot box, not just petition the government, but to be able to say, I'm going to vote for one candidate as opposed to another based on all of the aspects of the First Amendment. So uh, that notion has not yet been accepted. As he indicated, he has spoken privately with a few of the Supreme Court justices who have liked that idea. But again, I don't think it's going to be adopted. Hopefully, I'll have a little better uh, luck in terms of this national anthem notion. But uh, I, you know, I think it's possible. The other aspect about doing the national anthem at a professional sports, or it doesn't have to be, could be college sports as well, is obviously we have a lot of protests that are taking place at athletic events now. We had people, uh, Colin Kaepernick, we had a number of other players who have protested, and that's created a lot of controversy because a lot of people don't understand why that happens. And if you understand the First Amendment, you understand that the right to protest, the right to express your uh, opposition to something is part and parcel of the First Amendment. So hopefully it would make people more sensitive to see protests that are happening in stadiums and arenas around the country. Are you optimistic for the next year, next five years, next 10 years in terms of uh, speech in this country? Are you are you feeling good about where things are with social media, with protests, with marches in the you know, old style? Let's go to D.C. and have a march or whatever. Uh, and in terms of, I guess, something we didn't touch on enough, maybe next time when it comes to 
uh, privacy online issues, things like that? Well, I've, in each of my conversations, I really tried to get uh, everyone to talk a little bit about at the end of the day, are they optimistic or pessimistic? And again, there's a variation. I'll tell you what my take on it is, but certainly we have people like Nadine Strassen, who calls herself a congenital optimist. She thinks that the ability to express ourselves is better than it's ever been, and obviously it has been. Uh, we all know social media. We all know that we can have multiple outlets to express ourselves. When you look back at John Peter Zenger, you could only express yourself then if you wanted to be a publisher, if you own the printing press. And all of us now have our own printing presses. We all have computers and smartphones, and we can upload and communicate very freely. So to that extent, there's a sense of congenital optimism. I spoke to Lucy Dalglish, who now is the Dean of the Merrill College of Journalism at the University of Maryland. And she's very optimistic because she thinks that uh, the journalists that she and others are training uh, are better than ever. And we see a lot of really great investigative journalism that's taking place now. So you could be optimistic there. On the other hand, there is pessimism. So Lucy talks about the pessimism of government now seeming to restrict more information than ever from getting out there. And we saw a lot of that, uh, not just in the Trump administration, but in the Obama administration. We have a law called the Freedom of Information Act, but clearly there are battles that go on in terms of whether or not information will be kept from the public or kept from media by virtue of the exceptions to the Freedom of Information Act. So uh, that sort of gives you a little sense of the optimism, optimism and pessimism. Uh, Bob Corden-Revere, who's also in the book, so Bob talks about it in a little different context. He says, this is really a one step at a time process that we always are fighting the next battle. And as long as we're there to fight the next battle, that's really what's important. Uh, so you don't really need to be optimistic or pessimistic. You just have to basically uh, be there to put your armor on and to, to fight those battles. Uh, I, I tend to be more optimistic than pessimistic. Uh, the last person I should mention is Jeff Stone. Jeff was the most pessimistic, and Jeff believes that we are in a very dangerous situation with regard to the future of democracy. And you really can't be optimistic about the First Amendment if you're relatively pessimistic about the future of democracy, since they go hand in hand. Uh, I'm, I'm relatively optimistic. Uh, I'm not a congenital optimist. I think I'm relatively sober. And I, I would think my feelings uh, sort of fall in the middle of the spectrum I've just described, have elements of each of them. But I, I think social media on balance is a, a plus. I think, again, we have the ability to express ourselves quite freely today. The idea of censorship, I think, particularly in things like movies, is no longer something that we really see. Now, there are areas I'm getting less optimistic about. We now see libraries and communities trying to prohibit libraries from having certain books. And so clearly we are 
backpedaling or looking backwards as opposed to looking forward. Uh, so I think Bob Cord Revere's lesson here is probably the right one, which is we have to be ready to fight the next battle. Ready to fight the next battle. I think armed with this book, uh, we will have a leg up. Uh, the First Amendment lives on. Uh, it's a fascinating book of fascinating conversations. Uh, as mine with you has been, and I hope there's another time, Stuart Brockman. Thank you very much, and I'm going to go memorize the First Amendment right now. Thanks so much. It's been a real pleasure. You've been listening to Talking Beats with me, Daniel Lalchuk. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and write a review if you would. That really helps. The original music for this show is by Ronald Markham, the producer is Doug Christian. For more information, visit the website of the show, TalkingBeats.com. Thank you for listening. This is Talking Beats with Daniel Lelchuk.